0: Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 31. Thinking back to a mighty fortress, which we just sang, it's striking to me that we do in fact have an ancient foe. We have an ancient foe, and there is none on this earth that is equal to him, and he threatens to undo us. And when you consider that fact, with the fact that we are a people who are weak and needy. Then you realize that this foe is going to prey on us in our weakness and in our neediness. And threaten to undo us at every turn that he can. He is going to rear his head and seek to overcome us. Has, has that happened in your life this past week? Has, has this ancient foe sought to prey on you in your weakness and in your neediness. Because he has me. And so the question for us is, what hope do we have when we are confronted with this ancient foe? And we were confronted with our weakness and our neediness. What hope do we have? What encouragement from the Lord do we possess? We're going to be in a passage this morning that's going to continue our study of the book of Genesis. And it's going to continue the storyline of Genesis. We're going to see Jacob return from Padan Aram back to the promised land. And we're going to see God move his covenant purposes and, and his covenant plans forward. God, uh, in order for this to happen, Jacob has to leave his time away from the promised land. He has to return home. But not only that, in, in the midst of this story, God is going to encourage us. He's going to encourage us weak and needy people. He's going to encourage us people who are assailed by an ancient foe. We're going to look at this passage this morning and in many ways it's going to feel a million miles away from us. It's very foreign. There are lots of things going on that are strange. There's magic. There are household gods. There are covenants being made. There's this sort of public lawsuit. Things that we're not very familiar with in our worlds. But I think as we get to the heart of this passage, we realize it's not a million miles away from where we are. No, it is right here. At its heart, this passage is dealing with a person struggling to honor and experience God. And in the midst of this, facing all sorts of obstacles and discouragements. And so, what encouragement Does God have for this person? And what encouragement does the Lord have for us today as we struggle in this world and we face obstacles and discouragements as we have an ancient foe that is dead set on our harm? What word from the Lord do we have that would give us hope? Well, this is what we're gonna be considering today. We're gonna seek to be encouraged from God's word as we look at the life of Jacob. And as we do so, we're gonna see three points Three points from the word. First, God will finish what he begins. He will finish what he begins. Praise the Lord. And two, the sanctified life is a life that is at odds with this world. And finally, God is for us. God is for us. We're going to be reading sections of Genesis 30 and 31 uh, in our time this morning we're not going to read every line of this passage it's a fairly long passage so i'm going to be diving into some significant portions of this story but i am going to skip over other things i hope to summarize uh the story as best as i can though so we have a good sense of what is actually happening here in Genesis 30 and 31. I'm gonna start by skipping forward a little bit in the story to Genesis 31, verses three through 16. We'll read this, and then we'll we'll backtrack a little bit to explain a little bit of the context. So we'll see our first point this morning. God will finish what he begins. Genesis 31, starting in verse three, if you would read along with me. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. He said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our Father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. <clears throat> so, what are we seeing In god's word this morning as i read this particular portion of genesis 31 it's striking to me how different of a jacob we are dealing with than we have dealt with thus far in the book of genesis this jacob doesn't look like the jacob of the past several chapters what sort of jacob have we seen thus far In the book of Genesis. If we go back to the very beginning. We see a Jacob who is jockeying for position with his brother Esau. Grabbing at his heel. Seeking to get around him. All the way back at the very beginning of his life. We learn of the type of person that Jacob is. And putting it simply. He is a punk. He's deceitful. He's a schemer. He's a blasphemer. If we're to advance a little bit into his life, we see that he swindles his brother out of his birthright. He goes and he deceives his father in order to receive the family blessing. He blasphemes God. Just last week, Kenny taught us from, uh, from Genesis 30 about the, the battle that that rage between Rachel and Leah and their desire to have children, their desire to win the affection of Jacob, their desire to to gain status and notoriety in the midst of their community. And where was Jacob in the midst of all of this? Passive, silent, in the background, not stepping in, not seeking to lead, not seeking to give word and understanding and clarity to this situation. Sin upon sin. The sinfulness of the patriarchs is a theme that we have covered over and over again so far in our study of the book of Genesis. It is a clear and predominant theme. But here, here we see something different. Here we see a different type of Jacob. I think what we're seeing is a humbled Jacob. I think what we're seeing, to use a New Testament category, is a Jacob who is being sanctified. So let's back up and see how we came to this interaction with Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Remember last week's passage ended with Rachel giving birth to her son, Joseph. And as that happens, we get Genesis 30, verse 25. Jacob knew it was time to go. Go. So Jacob goes to his father in law, Laban, and says, I've served you faithfully these past 14 years. You've benefited. You've done well as a result of my service. Now it is time for me to take what is mine and to leave. And Laban was not having that. Laban wanted to keep Jacob around, so he offered him a deal Name your price, I will give you your wages. Here, what's happening is, is Laban is being tricky. He says, okay, you want to leave? You want to go and you want to put your family in a good position? Well, if you want something, then you're going to have to work for it. Laban is trying to trick Jacob. He wants Jacob to stick around for longer. But Jacob has a plan. Give me a percentage of your flock and I will shepherd your flock yet again give me the striped spotted and mottled sheep and goats of your flock and I will shepherd this is a good deal basically what what Jacob is proposing to Laban is to uh, for service of shepherding his flock that Jacob would receive about 10 15 maybe 20 percent of Laban's flock this is fair This is fair for employer. This is fair for employee. For Laban, though, this is ideal. For it provides him the context or the opportunity to trick Jacob once again. What happens as Jacob uh, extends this offer to Laban? Laban readily accepts. Only... Laban immediately goes and he takes all of the the striped, spotted, and mottled sheep and goats out of the flock. And in doing so, he makes it so that in order for Jacob to have any sort of fair wages, wages that would enable him to leave Laban's land, he would have to work for Laban for much longer. So, what does Jacob do? He is in a bind. He's not going to be able to have a, a flock A fair wage for quite some time. So he does something strange. He goes and he takes different types of sticks and he peels them. And then as the strong sheep and goat of the flock come and mate, he puts these sticks before the sheep and the goats. Well, that's weird. that, that is a, a strange plan. Part of what we're seeing is cleverness. What we're seeing is a type of selective breeding. We're seeing the strong sheep and the strong goats coming together and mating. And so when that happens, Jacob is seeking to uh, take advantage of the strength of these animals so that they might produce more strong animals. But part of what he's doing is just magic. It's trying to manipulate the gods in order to do his bidding and produce a favorable outcome. The question in this, though, is, did it work? What happened? It did work. As a result of this, the sheep and the goats produced striped, speckled, and spotted sheep and goats, and strong ones at that. In other words, Jacob prospered. Jacob prospered. His flock grew, and all the while, Laban's prosperity shrank as his flock shrink. This caused a problem. This changed the way that Laban looked at Jacob. It changed the way Laban's children, his sons, looked at Jacob. And this is when the Lord shows up. So this takes us back to verse three, which we just read. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your father's and to your kindred, and I will be with you. What did Jacob do? Did he tarry? Did he scheme? Did he remain passive? Did he act in accordance with the revealed character of Jacob that we have seen and experienced thus far? Did he act like Jacob? No. No, verse 4, immediately, immediately he springs into faithful obedience. Immediately he calls Rachel and Leah to him and he lays out the plan. We're going back home. I want us to notice two things about Jacob's conversation with Rachel and Leah. Two things that I think that reveal the sort of person that Jacob is becoming. First, in the midst of this conversation, Jacob praises God. He praises God. As Jacob is talking to his wives, he lays out the whole story about what's been going on between him and their father. He lays out that Laban has been cheating him and has been changing his wages and just ultimately making life difficult and unfair. And then he lays out this whole thing about the flocks, about the striped, the speckled, and the spotted sheep and goats, and about the sticks, and how strangely the Lord used this to to bring about a desired outcome. What does Jacob say, though, about this? As he synthesizes this, as he summarizes what happened, what does he say actually occurred in the midst of all of this? Verse nine. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Who did this? Was Jacob's prosperity due to his own labor? Was Jacob's prosperity due to his fancy magic trick? Was this because of Jacob's ingenuity, because Jacob's brilliance, because of Jacob's hard work? No, Very clearly, God did this, and Jacob recognizes it. God acted, and Jacob recognizes that action. And in a very Psalm 29 or Psalm 96 sort of way, Jacob then gives glory to God for his mighty and his excellent deeds. This is a different sort of Jacob than we've dealt with in the past. This seems to be a Jacob who is worshiping God. This is the first thing that we see in this conversation with Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. But a second thing, in the midst of this, Jacob lovingly leads his wives. Remember last week, Jacob sinned against his wives as he remained passive in the background. As he refused to step in and lovingly lead and and tend to his wives who were fighting and battling and waging war on one another's souls. In, In last week's passage, Jacob abdicated his responsibility as the spiritual head of his family. But what do we see here? The opposite. The opposite, Jacob receives word from the Lord and he goes to his wives. He doesn't demand that they follow him. He doesn't tell them how it is. No, he models humility and spiritual headship. He serves them in love. He reasons with them. He brings them into the plan. He seeks to win their support. He reasons. He takes initiative in loving and leading his family in the way that the Lord would have them to go. This is an altogether different sort of Jacob than we've, than we've seen just even in the past chapter. What I think we're seeing here is the beautiful gospel truth of Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus In Philippians 1.6, I think we get something of the heart and character of God. And I think that heart is demonstrated in the life of Jacob. Jacob is a mess. But God does not abandon him to his messiness. No. God involved Jacob in his covenant. He has made a promise to work in him and through him to bring about his covenant blessings so that all the world would be blessed. So what we're seeing here is the result of God's faithful action towards Jacob now bearing fruit. This is James 1. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jacob has been humbled by 14 long years in service to Laban, and now an additional six. And he's been humbled by the infighting of his wives. He's been humbled by having to be sent away to a foreign land because of his deceptive, scheming nature. But now, it seems that through these things, God has produced something in him. A sort of steadfastness, a sort of faithfulness. To be sure, Jacob is a work in progress. If we look at at the, the... the scale of where Jacob is, it's hard to pin him down exactly. I mean, there are things in his life that very much are characterized by the old self. I mean, for instance, he very much engages in a form of soft magic in this passage. Nevertheless, on the whole, what we're seeing here is a Jacob who is growing. We're seeing a Jacob who's largely uh, put in a positive light in this passage, a Jacob that is characterized by Being like God. He's not the person he once was. And here's the deal. Grace, this should encourage us. This should encourage us. God is not finished with us either. If we've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, then by God's grace, we are not who we once were. And by God's grace, we are not yet who we will one day be. God has formed us, and he is currently forming us. God has rooted out sin, and he is currently rooting out sin in us. We are not finished products. We can grow. We can change. It's one of the huge promises of the gospel. God is at work in us, and he will not abandon that work. I know many of us go throughout our lives, and our sin is ever before our face. We're so intimately aware of our sin, and it crushes us. Not only that, but many of us in our flesh are are natural-born moralists and legalists. Although we hear the gospel preached regularly and we believe the gospel, there's some part of us that thinks that we still have to earn our way and our status before a good and holy God. And so as we sin either seeking to earn our way to God or in the face of a holy God, we groan. And we groan that groan of shame and condemnation. We groan as we allow anger to envelop us once again. We groan as we recognize that the root of bitterness has not been weeded out. We groan as we return to that habitual sin yet again. We groan as we see our lack of generosity. We groan as we speak unkind words to our children or to our friends. Over and over again, our sin is before our face. But as we read a story like this, and we read it through the lens of the gospel, then we can know first that in Christ Jesus, our sins are indeed forgiven, cast as far as the east is from the west. His righteousness has been credited to us, imputed to us, but now God is working and in this process of life now, this Christian life, he is now making us righteous. He's actually causing our, uh, our selves, our, our actions to become in accord with what he has declared to be true in us. And so keep going. Keep pressing. Press on towards the prize. Lean into God's redemptive plan and work in you. Lean into the circumstances that God brings into your life to humble you, to bring about steadfastness and faith. God won't give up on you. We see that in the life of Jacob. And if if God won't give up on Jacob, then in Christ he surely will not give up on you. So we see this here in the story of Jacob, but that's not all we see. We also see the consequence of God's continued grace in a person's life. And here in the story of Jacob, we see how that causes us to relate to the world in a negative way. That's our second point. The sanctified life will put us at odds with the world. The sanctified life will put us at odds with the world. Now let's back up, chapter 30, and read verses 25 through 28. Verse 25. And as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given you but Laban said to him if I have found favor in your if I have found favor in your sight I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you name your wages and I will give it what we're seeing in these verses is that God's kingdom purposes in the God's kingdom purposes and plans are not compatible with the purposes and plans of this world. In these verses, we're seeing a humbled Jacob, an in process Jacob, seeking to lean into God's plans. He's going to return home. Fourteen long years ago, he set out to come to this land to find a wife. And now, 14 years later, he has completed his service to Laban. He has two wives and eight children. And he says, it's time. It's time to go and lean into God's covenant plans and purposes for me. God is going to do something through me and through my family, so I have to return. And so when he goes to Laban, he says this. He says, it's time. And here, as Jacob does this, he represents the sanctified life, the life that leans into God's plans and purposes. And how does Laban respond? It's not time, not if I have anything to do with it. Name your wages and I will give it. Laban has been able to discern That he's a blessed man and that blessing is not due to his own effort. It's not due to his own hard work. It's not due to his ingenuity. It's not due to anything in himself. It's due solely to Jacob. His prosperity rests on the shoulders of Jacob. And as Laban has been able to discern this, he recognizes that by sending Jacob away, he is sending away his prosperity. And so what we're seeing happening here in this passage is the beginning of a war beginning to rage. We see the sanctified life represented in Jacob who wants to follow the call of God versus the way of the world represented in the self-centered Laban who is concerned with his riches. And so he wants to hold on to Jacob and not let him go. The story continues. And as it does, we see Jacob indeed prosper. His flock grows and as that happens, Laban loses his prosperity. And as each leans into their worldview, the divide between them grows. Laban and his sons no longer regard Jacob with favor as they once did. And so as this happens, once again, Jacob goes to his wives with this plan to leave. And surprisingly, they're on board. They've seen that Laban has not only cheated Jacob, but in cheating Jacob, they, he has actually cheated them as well. He has robbed them as well. He has robbed their children as well. And so here Laban's sin has far-reaching consequences. It's not only alienated him from Jacob, but also his daughters and also his grandchildren. And so this sin has consequences and they are ready to leave. And so a plan is hatched. This is the shearing season where, where shepherds would have to go and shear their sheep and it would take a very long time. It was a big process. So Laban and his sons and his kinsmen would go off to go and shear sheep. And as this happened, Jacob and his wives saw the ideal time to leave. And so they left. About three days later, Laban realizes that Jacob and Rachel and Leah have left. And he gets his sons, he gets his kinsmen, and takes pursuit. Now as that happens, listen to the sort of words that Genesis 31 uses to describe Jacob's pursuit of, or Laban's pursuit of Jacob. Verse 22, Jacob fled Laban. Verse 23, Laban pursued Jacob. Verse 25, Laban overtook Jacob. Now this might be nuanced here, but this is not the language of strained relationships. This is not the language of a family who's having a hard time. The sort of language that's being employed here in Genesis 31 is language that invokes images of war. Jacob has become an enemy to Laban. And all of this comes to a head in verse 29. Laban says to Jacob, after he overtakes him, it is in my power to do you harm. As Jacob pursues the Lord and pursues his purposes, a divide is introduced between him and Laban that eventually goes to a place where violence is imminent. As I read this story and I think about uh, the, the incompatibility between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, I can't help but think of the culture wars that are, that are currently ongoing in our world. It seems so apparent to me in this day, in this age, that the sanctified life is not compatible with this world. I want to read for you an interaction that happened between a senator and a man named Russell Vaught. Vaught is a Christian who was up for an appointment in a director position at the White House. And so he had to go before the Senate uh, to be confirmed. And one senator really went after Vaught because of his Christian faith. Listen to how this went. Senator, let me get to this issue that has bothered me and bothered many other people. And that is in this piece that I referred to that you wrote for the publication called Resurgent. You wrote Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology, they do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. Do you believe that that statement is Islamophobic? Vought, absolutely not, Senator. I'm a Christian. And I believe in a Christian set of principles based on my faith. That, po- that post, as I stated in the questionnaire, is to the committee was to, be, was to defend my alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school that has a statement of faith that includes the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation. And Senator, I apologize. Forgive me. We just don't have a lot of time. Do you believe people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? Is that your view? Again, Senator, I'm a Christian. And I wrote that piece in accordance with the statement of faith at Wheaton College. Senator, I understand that. I don't know how many Muslims there are in America, maybe a couple million. Are you suggesting that all those people stand condemned? What about Jews? Do they stand condemned? Vought, Senator, I'm a Christian, dot, dot, dot. Senator, shouting, I understand you are a Christian, but this country is made up of people who are not just. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people of different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, do you think those people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Vought. Thank you for probing on that question. As a Christian, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. Senator, you think your statement that you put into that publication, they do not know God because they rejected Jesus Christ, His son and they stand condemned. Do you think that's respectful of other religions? This senator went on to say, this is not, not the type of person that America wants to serve in a role like he was being nominated for. Now, <clears throat> I, share, I don't share this interaction to politicize our time in the word this morning, but rather to give an illustration, an example of uh, what we're seeing here in Genesis 31. What we're seeing in this interaction between the senator and Vought is a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. Vought is holding historical biblical truths The plain gospel is being proclaimed and it is being clearly misunderstood for spiritual blindness probably, but the result is the age-old truth that Jesus himself said, you will be hated by everyone on account of my name. The sanctified life, the life that seeks to honor Christ in word, deed, and attitude is contradictory to the kingdom of this world. And living out the sanctified life puts us at odds with the program of this world. By being, uh, by being obedient to Christ's commands, by seeking to live out the Great Commission, by seeking to honor God in word, deed, and faith, by seeking to love God and love others, we will butt up against the values of the world. As we seek to faithfully live out sanctified lives, we will... Uh, we will We will be people who are misunderstood, mischaracterized. People will consider us to be prudes because we seek to live in a holy manner. People will will think that that we're hate-filled as we seek to love others by calling sin, sin. Sin. People will call us bigots for our view on the exclusivity of the gospel, that there is one way to to God, that, that there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. People will feel awkward when we gather together at Thanksgiving dinner and we refuse to engage in crude or discriminatory talk. People will think we're weird for using a week out of our summer to serve and bless children and seek to preach the gospel to them. And terribly, the reality is that we will find ourselves at odds with this world for seeking to live out the Christian life. We'll find ourselves at odds with our father-in-laws, with our mother-in-laws, with our parents, with our children, with our neighbors, with our friends. As sanctification takes place, in some manner this will grow. And so this isn't great news. You'll be hated as you seek to live for Christ. You'll be misunderstood, mischaracterized, mistreated as you seek to live for Christ. But the story of Jacob and Laban isn't over just yet. Laban has overtaken Jacob. Jacob and his family are in a tough spot. What's the resolution? And as we see this resolution, we'll see our final point this morning. God is for us god is for us chapter 31 verse 42 if the god of my father the god of abraham and the fear of isaac had not been on my side surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. Laban overtakes Jacob, and there's this big final showdown. All of Jacob's family is on one side, Laban and his sons and all of his kinsmen are on the other side, and they're going to have it out one last time. And in this setting, Laban accuses Jacob of wrongdoing, and this is going to be settled before the assembly. We've already covered Laban's violent intentions. Once again, in the midst of this confrontation, verse 29 tells us that Laban said to Jacob, it is in my power to do you harm. So why not? Why didn't he do him harm? Verse 42 tells us why. Because God had been on Jacob's side. Because throughout this entire story, Because throughout Jacob's entire sojourn in Padan Aram, God had been on his side. God has been for Jacob. How? Think back. When Jacob is explaining to Rachel and to Leah his plan to leave, he said that Laban no longer regarded him as before. But, but, Jacob says, but God, the God of my father has been with me. God was for Jacob and therefore God was with Jacob. And because God was with Jacob, verse 7, Laban was unable to harm him. Because God was with Jacob, verse 9, God gave success to his plans and God took Laban's livestock and gave it to him. Because God was with Jacob, when Laban was about to overtake him, God intervened. And in verse 24, we see that God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. He is mine. You shall not rise up against him. God is so powerfully for Jacob that in this final confrontation between Jacob and Laban, In front of the entire family, in front of witnesses, in front of the assembly, Jacob's righteousness is vindicated and Laban's wickedness is validated. Laban is thoroughly rebuked by God through Jacob. Laban is done. The God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, the one who produces dread has raised up and he has defended his servant. He has held him up in his safe hands. And Laban can't stand. And so, what can Laban do except tuck his tail between his legs? That's how this story ends. Laban realizes who he is dealing with in Jacob, and he realizes who is on Jacob's side. And so, he's done. All that's left is for him to acknowledge Jacob as an equal and propose a peace treaty in the form of a covenant which Jacob enters into. This is how God gets Jacob back to the promised land. Jacob enters into the promised land with a covenant at his back, guaranteeing peace at his rear and guaranteeing that he and his family are now a new and a distinct people separate from Laban. All of this because God is for him. Moving to the New Testament, Romans 8 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies is a passage that illustrates, or Jacob's, uh, Romans 8 is a passage that, that is encaptured, I believe, in Jacob's story. Jacob's story illustrates this beautiful gospel truth contained in Romans 8. God was for Jacob. He'd entered into a covenant relationship with Jacob's grandfather, and now he had endeavored to work in and through Jacob. And because of that, God blessed Jacob. He preserved him, he sustained him, he prospered him. He made it so that even if the devil himself would rear his head against Jacob or if the world and all of its power would stand against Jacob, it would not prevail. And what we have to reckon with this morning is that just as God was with Jacob and just as God was for Jacob, God is for us. And if God is for us in Christ Jesus, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, then who can be against us? Can the danger or distress or persecution from the world that we talked about earlier separate us from the love of Christ? Can these things have any say on our eternal destiny? No. In Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors. No, the promise of the gospel is that those who have turned and believed in the Lord Jesus are safe in their father's hands. Nothing, not our flesh, not the world, not Satan, the ancient foe himself can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is what the Lord has for us this morning. We're going to close our time by seeing the very words of Romans 8 in the form of an Adventure Week song from last year. I want to ask you to declare the glory of the gospel and the beauty of what Romans 8 says by singing out loud, by singing with gusto here in just a moment. Let us remember the promise of the gospel. Let us glory in the promise of the gospel. Let us apply this word today and seek to encourage our hearts by singing loud together. I'm going to pray and we'll do this. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ Jesus, in whom we have the promise of redemption. Because of Christ, we will never be separated from you, O oh Lord. Because of Christ, we are perfectly safe in your hands. We thank you for that. Lord, as we face discouragement, as our ancient foe seeks to undo us, Lord, I pray that you would overwhelmingly protect us and ground us in the finished work of Christ. Lord, I pray now that that you would buoy us and cause us to stand on the promises of Christ. And so, Lord, would you work these in us by your spirit, even as we sing those promises in just a moment. Lord, go with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.